I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 11, and you'll recognize, of course, that Exodus 20 puts us smack in the middle of God's Ten Commandments. And in particular, we're going to be looking today at the Fourth Commandment. That shouldn't be surprising to you. We've been talking about rest the entire service. Today, we'll be looking at the Fourth Commandment that deals with the Sabbath rest. And as you know, this is part of our series where we're looking at the vision of our church those things that we value as a church. And we're taking a different biblical text each week that unfolds one of those values of our vision. And our vision is very straightforward. It is centered on the gospel because we believe the gospel has the power to transform this whole town of Flower Mound, this whole nation, indeed the entire world. And it does so because the gospel brings about personal transformation and makes us a new people from within. It brings about community formation as it forms us into the people of God. It brings about social justice, biblically defined meaning that things are coming, uh, things are being made right the way they were supposed to be. And cultural renewal as we renew and restore the very things that we do as human beings. So we believe in the power of the gospel to do that. And these last few weeks, we've been focusing on the last of those sections that we've been talking about. That is cultural renewal, cultural renewal. We've seen that we as God's people are called to understand this culture in which we live, that we're to engage the culture as believers, that we are to shape it as believers. And as we've been doing that, we've looked at different topics. One of those topics that we've talked about in the past has been the topic of work. We looked at vocation. Well, today I want to look at a very important and key area of our culture, which is the balance between work and rest, something which our culture doesn't seem to get just right. We've already discussed the importance and the role of work in our society, but does the Bible have anything to say about rest? And yes, yes, it does. Before we jump into that, this reminds me of uh, some years ago, I was seeing this clip, this little movie clip from the 1950s, and it was talking about the technology in the modern 1950s kitchen and how the housewife of the 1950s had it so much better than the housewives of the 1910s, 40 years earlier, which undoubtedly was true. And then it was saying if technology continues advancing with all these automated devices in another 40 years, by the 1990s, the housewives of tomorrow would have absolutely nothing to do. They'd be able to sit back and kick up their heels. I hear some laughing in the back. Why? Why? But the reality, I mean, if you ever watched the Jetsons, right, that Hanna-Barbera cartoon from the early 60s, it played up on that whole thing. Everything was so automated. There was nothing to do. You had Rosie the Robot doing everything, and Mrs. Jetson just kind of, you know, sat back and enjoyed life. But that's not been the case at all, has it been? Because the bottom line is that we fill in all our free time with even more work. And today we might add social media. But it's interesting that we as Americans, along with the Koreans and the Japanese, we as Americans on the whole work much more than anyone else in the world. As a society, as a culture, we value work. We give very little consideration for rest and vacation and those sorts of things. In fact, we're sort of embarrassed when we are not working. We take value in being able to say that I work 70 hours a week and that sort of thing and compare that. With the rest of the world, look at France and Germany and Australia where the men average 35 hours a week of work, about half of what a lot of American men do. And that begins to give you the idea that in our culture, 
we value work, but perhaps we don't value rest. And there's something that has been lost in that. We've already seen in our short series here that God did create us for work, for work, but does he also create us for rest? Does he understand our need for that? And of course he does. And that's what the fourth commandment is in part about. So let's take a look at that. Exodus chapter 20, we'll be reading verses 8 through 11. Hear now God's word. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing, especially as it's preached to us this morning. Well, people of God, here we are ready to jump into an exposition of the Sabbath. And you might remember back in February, we looked at the regulative principle. I preached on that. The regulative principle is the one that tells us that our worship is defined by the word of God. And I said when we studied the regulative principle that that was going to be the first of two controversial topics that we would look at in the sermon series. Well, guess what? This, the Sabbath, is the second controversial uh, topic. Now, it didn't used to be so. There was a day in which all of Christendom had no problem with the Sabbath. Our culture, within my own memory, and I'm not that old, but, you know, simple 50 years ago, everyone would shut down on Sundays. It didn't matter whether you're Lutheran, whether you're Episcopalian, whether you're Presbyterian, whether you're Methodist. It didn't matter whether you were uh, Roman Catholic or whatever the case may be. Everybody understood this. But that value has dropped away from our society and from our culture. And so as we are reintroduced to it, again, it can be a little bit confusing. How do we do that in a right way? After all, we no longer live under the Mosaic economy, that is, under the law of Moses. So you might have a question, how does the Sabbath apply here in the New Covenant? Well, to answer that question is much, much more than can be said in a single sermon, and we won't try uh, despite what you may think, I really do not say everything that can be said about any topic um, whenever we look at it. But what we will try to do this morning is at least orient you in the right direction. And in order to help you do that, we've printed for you in the bulletin right under the sermon text, we've printed one of the questions from the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism, and it deals particularly with this question. So let's read that, and that will help us to get an orientation Why don't I read the question, and won't you join me in reading the answer? The Heidelberg Catechism, question 103, asks, What is God's will for us in the fourth commandment? Let's answer together. First, that the gospel ministry and education for it be maintained, and that especially on the festive day of rest... I regularly attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. Second, that every day of my life, I rest from my evil ways. Let the Lord work in me through his spirit. And so begin already in this life the eternal Sabbath. 
Wow, there's the ticket, the eternal Sabbath. What does that mean? Let's look at our passage and see if we can't uh, unfold that. And as we look at the Sabbath and having read that question, it challenges us, doesn't it? And one of the things that I think we have to do is examine ourselves seriously when we're dealing with a topic with which we are less familiar and which our culture has rejected. And we have to ask, am I going to allow myself to be more influenced by either the word of God and the gospel of Jesus or by consumerism and the pursuit of my own pleasure? This is really what's at stake here. Which of those is going to reign supreme in my life? And the answer to that question will determine if the Sabbath is indeed a delight or whether it's a bother, whether we see it as a blessing or whether we see it as a burden. So as we go into the study of it, there's one last caution I want to give, and that's that we have to avoid two extremes. And undoubtedly, you have run into at least one of those two extremes at some point. There is on one end those folks who say, well, look, the fourth commandment has some aspects of it that are provisional, that are ceremonial. Those things have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and that is in case, that is indeed the case. We'll look at that in just a moment. And because there are aspects of it, of it which are provisional, then everything in the fourth commandment can be jettisoned, and there is no keeping of the Sabbath today. The Ten Commandments for people in the New Covenant is really the Nine Commandments. So that's one extreme on one end. The other extreme says, no, 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 uh, the Ten Commandments, all of it, including the fourth, is part of the moral law, and the moral law applies to us today. And because of that, then, there is absolutely no difference between the way that uh, believers kept the uh, the Sabbath day under Moses in the Old Covenant and the way we keep it today in the New Covenant. And those are the two extremes that we want to avoid. Because there is a significant amount of overlap between the way that we kept uh, the Sabbath in the days of Moses and the way we keep it today in the New Covenant. But by the same token, there's also a very great difference in how we observe them, especially, especially in the light of the coming of Jesus. And that becomes the ticket, not just to understanding the fourth commandment, but all the commandments. If you ever want to look at any of the commandments in the Old Testament, especially the Ten Commandments, and understand them, you can only understand them in the light of the resurrection of Christ, in the light of the gospel. Our understanding has to be Christ-centered. And if we are Christ-centered, then we will avoid that view known as antinomianism, anti-law, that says there's no place for the fourth commandment. And we will also view the legalism that says we are to keep it exactly as it was kept in the days of Moses. So you see, that's the balance we want to strike, and we do that by centering ourselves on Christ. So all that by way of really introduction Let's jump into our text, and we're going to use the same structure that we used here recently. This is a mandate. This is the mandate for the Sabbath, just like the cultural mandate. So I want to use that simple structure that we used before of mandate, magnitude, motivation, and method. I'm going to use that to understand. What is the Sabbath mandate? What is the magnitude or the scope of it? What is the motivation for keeping it? And what is the method by which we keep it? So let's take a look at the mandate. We have the mandate to keep the Sabbath day given to us right here in the fourth commandment, right? We were told, you uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So there is the mandate given. I could stop right there, but I do want to point out the next verse, verse 11, because there is a basis 
that we are given for why we are to observe this mandate. Two reasons that are given. The first one is because God created us. That's what we see in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This reason that's given in the commandment is very, very important because it shows us that the Sabbath is rooted in the creation. It takes us all the way back to Genesis. If we look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, we read, The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so going back to our text in Exodus, we see that in the fourth commandment, we look back to creation and we say, because God rested on that day, we now rest on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day rest mimics the rest that God had on the seventh day. And so we see then that uh, that, that Sabbath rest is a creation ordinance. If you were in Sunday school this morning, we talked a little bit about that. There are three ordinances that God institutes during the time of creation. These are things that happened before the fall. They're not tied to our sinfulness, and they're not tied to redemption. Uh, one of those we've already looked at in our own series, the cultural mandate, we're called to work. Uh, there is also marriage. Marriage is an institution that's put in place before the fall. It's not as a result of the fall. And so also the Sabbath. It is a creation ordinance. And all the creation ordinances, as we see, are perpetual, and they are permanent, just like marriage and labor are things that continue. Now, mind you, they've all been affected by the fall, but they came before the fall. So they are perpetual and permanent, and that means that keeping the Sabbath is permanent as well. So the first reason why we are given that we are to keep the Sabbath is because God created us. It is a creation ordinance. But there's a second reason. It's because God not only created us, but he redeemed us. He redeemed us. Now, I'm going to tell you, you don't find that here in Exodus chapter 20. You might remember that Exodus chapter 20 uh, uh, is written right after the people of God have been delivered from their slavery in Egypt. The Exodus, God had brought his people out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, and he gave them the Ten Commandments. Now, another 40 years would pass, and Joshua would lead the people into the Promised Land. And right before doing that, God again gives the Ten Commandments, this time in Deuteronomy. So, in fact, the word Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. So if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, you will see the Ten Commandments. And they are exactly the same as the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, except except for the reason given for the Fourth Commandment. Let's take a look at that. Deuteronomy chapter 5, look at verse 15. The rest of the commandment is the same. Keep the day holy. Refrain from doing your work. And then in verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So there, the reasoning is different. In Exodus 20, it is because God created us. In Deuteronomy 5, it is because God redeemed us. It shows that the Sabbath day is rooted in both creation and redemption. And it makes sense because God had been redeeming his people all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the Exodus 
is the redemptive event par excellence in the Old Testament. Everything looks back to the Exodus, when God brought his people out of Egypt and delivered them from bondage, delivered them from slavery in Egypt. But even then, it was always pointing forward to the ultimate deliverance. God's people then understood that that deliverance was only temporary, and it was looking forward to when the Messiah would come and grant final deliverance. And so when we think about our own redemption, we're not thinking of Exodus. We're thinking of how how Jesus delivered us, not from captivity to Egypt, but from captivity and bondage and slavery to our own sin. And so we begin to see then that the Sabbath itself is rooted in the gospel. God not only created us, but in Christ he has redeemed us. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons why the keeping of the Sabbath is no longer on the seventh day. Follow me on this. In the Old Testament, that final Sabbath rest was looking forward to the coming of Christ. It was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. So they started the week and they went through it looking forward to the rest that they would have at the end of the week on the seventh day. But Jesus has already come. And Jesus, in his substitutionary life and death, has given us that rest. And so he was resurrected on the first day. And we have passages, for example, like Acts chapter 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, where it refers to worship now happening on the first day of the week. Revelation 1.10, John calls that the Lord's Day. And so for us, our Sabbath rest begins in the beginning of the week. We start now with, with the understanding that as we go into the week, God has redeemed us. God has done uh, uh, everything to bring us into his kingdom, into his covenant, and we now move forward into the week looking back at what God has already done for us. So that's why we have that shift from the Sabbath being on Saturday to now having worship on the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week. So what we see then is that both, if we look at the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, that that mandate to obey is rooted in the fact that God created us and that God redeemed us. And that's why we continue keeping it. Now, can I take a little aside because there are some folks over the years as I've preached this who have said, well, pastor, what do you do with a passage like Colossians 2.16? You may want to turn there. I'll just read it here in a moment. Because that passage seems to suggest that the Sabbath has been done away with completely. So what do we do with that passage as, as we live as believers in the New Covenant. Colossians 2.16 says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Well, certainly everything that Paul said there in Colossians is absolutely true. All those things, part of the Levitical law, those laws that said you can eat this, but you can't eat that, Those things, we come to the New Testament, and you remember the angel tells Peter, no, no, you can eat all those things. It's all okay. Then it talks about the festival, a new moon, and the Sabbath. And so these things are shadows. They were in the Old Testament pointing forward to the reality, to Jesus, to his coming, and to what he would do. So does this not mean, because it's mentioned Sabbath, that we no longer keep the Sabbath day? Well, let me just suggest several things. One is that we have to look at the context in which Paul is writing. Uh, the first thing that we want to see is when he's talking about these Levitical laws, in our ESV, festival, new moon, or Sabbath, Sabbath is capitalized, but it really shouldn't be. 
It's not the Sabbath, it's a Sabbath. And when we look at texts like Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, we'll realize that in the Levitical law, there were many different Sabbaths, even over and above the Sabbath on the seventh day. Because the word Sabbath just simply means rest. And sometimes some of these special ceremonial Sabbaths, they even occurred within days of one another. They weren't even a week separated. So that is what Paul is dealing with here. Plus, he's really talking about how it is that we're saved. His focus is on our justification, how we're made right with God. Justification by grace through faith. He's saying nothing that you do is going to save you. Whether it's keeping the Levitical law with all its rules of this festival and so on and what have you and the food you drink and and the food you eat and the drink that you drink. And that still applies today. Yes, we are called to keeping the Sabbath as a sign, as we'll see in a moment. But because you keep it doesn't in any way save you. So we have to look at the context of what it is that Paul was dealing with here. So with that said, and let me just move forward and say, yes, what we're looking at here is that the Lord's Day still applies. It's rooted in the fact that we were created. We're still created by God, right? Old Testament and New Covenant. And we're redeemed by God. That was true in the Old Testament. It's true for us today. And the relationship between those two is very important because your redemption, if you think about it, is really a recreation, isn't it? That's really what redemption is. It's a recreation. It's creation and recreation. We messed everything up with the fall. God is redeeming us and restoring things to the way they ought to be. And that, I won't go into in much detail, but the passage that we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 4, that's what it was talking about. It's saying that as God brought his people into the promised land under Joshua, that was not the final day of rest. We read it in Hebrews 4.1. The promise of entering God's rest still stands. God had delivered his people, and he traces all the way back to the creation, the idea of his rest, right? We read in 4.3 of Hebrews, God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. And when God entered into his rest, it was a promise of that rest that we would enter. By the way, had Adam and Eve sustained their probation, they would have entered that rest at that moment. But they didn't. And so we now have the covenant of grace where God has sent Jesus to save us. And we read in Hebrews that coming into the promised land was a picture of that final rest. But it is not that final rest. In fact, Hebrews uh, 11 tells us that it is only when Jesus returns that we, New Covenant believers, enter into the true promised land. That's when our rest comes. So Hebrews 4, 8, we read, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And that's where we're at when we talk about the mandate. We have not yet entered that final rest. That final rest still remains. We are still looking forward. Even though Jesus has redeemed us, there is an aspect in which we look forward. You see that in the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper has imagery of looking back and looking forward. We look back to what Jesus has done, even as we await his return. And the Sabbath day as a whole points forward to that return, that day of rest. So there is our mandate. God is our creator and our redeemer. Because of that, we rest. But we don't want to stop there. We want to ask then, in what ways is the Lord's day today different or the same as the Sabbath in the Old Testament? So we want to look at the magnitude of this commandment. How far does it stretch? We want to look at the scope and how much of it applies to us today, because this is where people get into trouble and how we fall into the two extremes. Kevin DeYoung, I think, is very helpful here. He says, 
The fourth commandment is very tricky. It seems like most Christians are either oblivious of the Sabbath and treat it like Saturday interrupted by church, or they advocate a strict Sabbatarianism that tries hard to apply to Sunday the details of the law of Moses, minus the death penalty, of course. And actually, if I were talking to Kevin, I'd say, I've run into a few people who uh, might want to bring back that death penalty. So maybe we don't subtract it. But those are the two extremes that we talked about earlier. We want to avoid them. How do we do it? Very simple. You have to be able to see what is provisional in the fourth commandment and what is permanent. What is provisional and what's permanent. And actually, we've already discussed most of this. So let me just go through it very quickly. What is provisional? Well, for one, the fact that it was observed on the seventh day. We've already seen why it switched from a Saturday to Sunday, from the Sabbath of the Old Testament on the seventh to the Lord's Day on the first. So that's definitely provisional. Also, in the Old Testament, because this was a part of the law that was also used by the nation of Israel, there was capital punishment for those who would break the Sabbath. That's been done away with in the New Covenant. And finally, there were some restrictions that were placed on them. They were told in those days that when the Sabbath day came, they were to go to Jerusalem, and there they were to offer sacrifices in the temple. Well, we no longer in the New Covenant have to go to Jerusalem in order to sacrifice. We don't longer have to go to a physical temple. Now, in principle, we still do, because the temple is simply the place where God makes himself known, where God dwells. And today, where do we come to worship? We come to worship where Jesus is, because Jesus is the final temple. Jesus is the place, if you can put it that way, where God dwells. Jesus, as you know, is the Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, and there will I be, he says. And so when we gather in the name of Jesus together as God's people, right here in this room or anywhere else, then we have come to the temple. We have come to Jesus. Now, we no longer offer sacrifices, at least not in the sense of sacrificing animals. Those were provisional. Those were temporary. Those were looking forward to the coming of Christ because Jesus is the final sacrifice, the one who, in giving his life, paid the penalty for our sin. But in one sense, we still do offer sacrifice, and that is our worship. Hebrews thirteen fifteen says that through Jesus, we continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so the aspect of going to Jerusalem, going to the temple, offering sacrifices, that has been done away with. That part is provisional, even though we continue to do those things in a spiritual sense. And that does show us that there still are elements that are permanent. John Calvin summarized that very well. He said there are three permanent things in the New Covenant. One, we still need a day on which we assemble for corporate worship. That happens on the Lord's Day. We gather for, as God's people. Second, we still need a day to provide physical rest from labor. We're still human beings. We still get tired and we still need to rest. And lastly, we still need a day to depict our spiritual rest that is to come in Jesus. We still have that aspect of looking forward. So the Lord's Day jettisons all those things that are provisional that we talked about, but it keeps those three things, a day to assemble for corporate worship, a day to provide physical rest, and a day to depict our spiritual rest. And as we understand that, we can see the magnitude now, the scope of this commandment and how we're to keep it. We're to keep it within those three things, corporate worship, physical rest, spiritual rest. 
And with that, let me then turn to say, well, why should we do it? Why should we follow through on this? And that's our third point, that of motivation. And the reason for that is tied into the covenant. God has entered into a covenant with us. That means that he has bound himself to us. He has made promises to us that he will be our God and we will be his people and we will receive blessings because of that. Well, the interesting thing is that the Lord's Day, the keeping of the Sabbath, serves as a sign of the covenant. We tend to think, well, you know, the Old Testament, it says that circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Today in the New Covenant, baptism is a sign of the covenant. And all that is absolutely true. Baptism does represent our being brought into a covenant relationship with God. But keeping the Lord's Day does so as well. In Exodus 31, verse 12, we read, The Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generation, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The word sanctify, you know, simply means to set apart, to make holy. God's people were set apart and distinct from the world in that they kept the Sabbath. It goes on in verse 16. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And so in the same way, for example, that the rainbow is a sign of God's covenant with Noah and with all of mankind that he would never destroy the world again through a flood. So keeping the Sabbath is a sign, as we read here, forever that God has entered into a covenant with his people to redeem them and to make them his. So when we understand that keeping the Lord's day is an act of the sign of the covenant, we get our three motivations from this because there are three ways in which keeping the Sabbath acts as a sign of the covenant. It is an act of rest, it is an act of worship, and it is an act of witness. It's an act of rest, an act of worship, and an act of witness. Those serve as our motivations. Let's look at the first one. It is an act of rest. As we've seen, God created our bodies to work. That was a creation ordinance that we already studied. But he also made us to rest. And he's given us the Sabbath day, one day in seven, as God's provision to give us that rest that we so desperately need. It's so interesting because we are constantly complaining that we never have a break. And yet here is God giving us a day sanctioned for our rest. He's built it into the very fabric of the week. So we can get that rest that we so desperately need. It is so uh, beneficial for us to be able to get that rest. So that's the first way, the first motivation is we need rest. Now, mind you, that requires trust. You might say, well, how so? Anytime our obligations in the covenant, we're in a covenant with God. Anytime that we're to fulfill those obligations, it requires us to have faith in God's purposes. Because if you rest on the Sabbath day, Well, what will that do to you and all your other responsibilities? Your competitors at work, they may not be resting. They're working seven days. They're going to perhaps surpass us. How am I going to survive? How about if I don't do my homework on this day? How am I going to be able to get through school and so on? There's always a temptation to keep on working. And God throughout the scripture calls us to believe 
that if we obey him, it really will be for our good. And of course, we all know all sorts of studies and all sorts of things that show that you actually, your productivity actually declines if you do not rest regularly. You may think that you're going on and working, but you're actually getting worse and worse. But it requires faith in, in order to observe the Lord's day. In fact, that's what Truett Cathy did. Does that name ring a bell? You might recognize the name Truett Cathy. He was the founder of Chick-fil-A. And he was a very strong Christian. So when he founded his stores, he made a commitment that on Sunday he would close 2,000-plus stores throughout the nation. Did that put him at risk? How would he be able to compete with his competitors? And yet he wanted to honor God first, and so he did so. And as a result, God has blessed him. Chick-fil-A has turned into the second biggest of all the chicken fast food chains. Might Might it have been first had it remained open? Possibly. We don't know the answer to that. But we know that he trusted that God would provide, and his business has prospered. God indeed has been faithful. He calls us to do the same. Well, the second way in which keeping the Lord's day proves to be a sign of the covenant and also gives us motivation is that it is an act of worship. In other words, we don't just rest from our work, but we rest in order to free us up that we might meet with God. In our text, we read that the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. The Sabbath has a direction, as it were. It's not just so you can lounge around on your couch. It's so you can direct your efforts to the Lord your God. This is a time for us to rest in the Lord. It's a time for us to spend time with him, to hear him speak to us in his word, and for us to worship him. It's a time for us to remember the goodness of God, what he has done for us in Jesus Christ, the redemption that we have in him through Jesus. Again, I find that we complain all the time. I never have time to spend with God devotion. I never have time to read my Bible. I never have time to read these wonderful devotional books. Well, here you have it. God has said, clear the decks, get rid of all these other uh, worldly activities, and this is a time to be refreshed, to spend it with the one who made you, with the one who redeemed you, the one who loves your soul, the Savior who gave himself for you. This is an act of worship. And the last of the motivations, the last of the ways in which the Lord's day is a sign of our covenant with God is that it is an act of witness, an act of witness. What do I mean by that? Well, the whole of the world is watching what we do, right? When we go to worship on Sunday, when we rest from our usual labors, those things are different. They're distinct. They make us different from the rest of the world. They serve as a witness. The world can't help but see that. The church father Tertullian once said that in his day, observing the Lord's day was the distinguishing mark of the Christian. It's what made them stand out in their culture. Unfortunately for us, we no longer stand out. But this is a key way in which we can stand out. And we can stand out not just by saying we don't work, but we can explain to them why. And it serves as a witness because we're pointing forward to the rest that Jesus provides. And oh, how our world desperately needs that. Because we live in a weary world. A world that wears us down, even, even if you do rest weekly. There's this daily grind. No matter how hard you work, you never really seem to arrive to get to that point where you want to be. Some of you know where I'm, what I'm talking about. Work never ends, even in retirement. There never is a time of true and permanent rest to enjoy everything that we've worked for in this life. Just when we think that we're going to be getting to that point, we're too tired, we're too old, and then we die. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is bringing forward in Ecclesiastes 5.15. It wants to bring us that despair and remind us of what life in a fallen world is like. 
It says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. All this is the result of the curse of the fall, of our rebellion against God. And the people around us, they feel it. They experience it. They see themselves running you know, on that treadmill. They're in the rat race and they're wondering, when will I arrive? That's where you come along and you explain to them, that's the good news. That's the gospel. That's why Jesus Christ came. He came to break that curse. And when he breaks it, he grants us true rest. You see, what Jesus did on the cross, he just didn't give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. He's restoring the whole of the universe. He's making things the way they were once meant to be. The resurrection of Jesus reverses the curse. Because when Jesus rose from the dead on that first day, he broke the power of death. And Jesus himself entered into that rest. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection. His resurrection points to the fact that one day we will be raised from the dead. And even though he has entered into his rest, one day we too shall enter into our rest. And we can offer that to the people in this weary world. We can do like Hebrews 4 and we read that Sabbath serving as a witness looking forward to that final rest that yet remains. We can tell them that there is a better world yet to come, something better on the horizon. And the Lord's Day serves as a witness to that. A day in which there will be no more suffering. A day in which there will be no more backbreaking labor. A day in which there will be no more sickness and no more death. When Gray was a little boy, little boy, he used to have to wear all these different appliances because of his needs. In addition to the leg brace that he still wears today, he used to have to wear other braces. He used to have to wear a brace on his arms. He used to have to wear patches on his eyes. Of course, he wore glasses like he still does today. And when Gray was six years old, I asked him if he understood what it meant that Jesus will return. And he replied, yes, it means no more braces, no more patch, no more glasses. And isn't that exactly the case? That's exactly what the new world is going to be like. And so the Sabbath day becomes a picture of what that life will be like on that final day. And it becomes a witness to our world that they can have this life too. That life with God is infinitely better than life against God. The Lord's day serves as a witness to that. It points to a this world that watches, that there is a rest to come and that Jesus is the only way to get to that rest. It's the reason why back in those days on Sunday, we would give Gray a break from all his appliances and from all his devices and all his patches so that he would learn from an early age that there was a day in which he would not require any of those things any longer. And that people of God should bring us joy. Joy when we think about what awaits us. And that is the true spirit of the Lord's day. It is a time for joy. It's a time for laughter. It's a time with fellowship with our friends and with our family. As we read in the Heidelberg Catechism, the Lord's day is the festive day of rest. It's not a time to be morose. 
and walking around, oh, I don't get to do things. No, it's a day in which our attention is brought to God, in which we revel in his goodness, and we enjoy the redemption that we have in Christ. It's not a day for doing your bills. It's not a day for doing homework. It's not a day for working on the projections for the next quarterly earnings, because all those things will be done away with in the new creation. No, today, the Lord's Day, is to be a picture of that final rest, of that freedom from all the labor and the backbreaking and the suffering and the hardships that we live in this life. So let us spend the Lord's Day as a time of joy, looking forward to the return of Jesus as we, as it were, spend a date with God. Have you ever been on a date and you, I don't want to go on that date. No, a date is an enjoyable time in which you get to enjoy the lover of your soul. And that's what the Lord's Day is. All right, well, let's wrap this up with just a few comments on the last point of method. How then? We already know why, that we have to keep it, that we keep it in a way that's different, that primarily it's driven because we need to rest physically, we need to worship, and we need to also look forward to that final rest and it becomes an act of witness. But let me just say a few things about method, how we keep it, because this is where a lot of folks get hung up. In verse 8, we read, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, how do we make it holy? The, the word holy just means to be set apart. How do we set apart this day and make it different? Let me just give you a couple of pointers. The first way in which we keep it holy is by gathering together for corporate worship. Corporate worship, right? God gathers his people together. He makes us into a body. He doesn't call us individually and just keep us separately. Remember, John 15 tells us, I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says. We are engrafted. We're not individually potted plants. We are part of this corporate body. Of course, some people sit there and say, well, pastor, I'm not sure about that because why do I have to come on Sundays? And that, by the way, doesn't just mean coming here but and going somewhere else. There, now there are a lot of folks with the Internet and so on who stay at home. Now, I mind, mind you, I understand that some people are providentially hindered from coming to worship because of age or disease or conditions or something of that nature. But to just sit in your living room because you don't want to take the trouble, that's a concern. I hear all the time, I can worship God on my own here on my fishing boat out on the lake. But there's this aspect of corporate worship that's not optional. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have to gather together for corporate worship. And let me just say, you have to make it a priority in your life. When you meet with your boss or your boss's boss, right? It's a big, important meeting, right? You go to bed early than the previous day. You make sure that you're all well-groomed. You're in your uh, best dress. You arrive on time. We should be able to do that at least when we come to meet with the one who is the creator of all things, the king over all the universe, the redeemer of our souls. We should at least give him that courtesy. We can do so by preparing on Saturday. I mean, it's very hard to be ready to worship on the Lord's Day if you've been out partying till 2 o'clock in the morning. So just prepare yourself before coming. And once you're here on the Lord's Day, make sure that you can indeed clear the decks. If your kid's coach tells you that we're going to do soccer on Sunday or band practice, let him know, no, my child will not do anything that makes him miss worship on the Lord's Day, or if you're going to go camping and you go on vacation, don't use that as an excuse. You're on vacation from work, but you're not on a vacation from God. We didn't read anywhere on here 
that we're to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, except when we're doing something else that we prefer to do. So be sure that you can clear the decks. Don't let those things get in the way. Again, the question is what I said earlier at the beginning. What is it that you value? What is it that is going to be your priority in your own life? And I'll just conclude this little section by saying, if we don't do that, and I see a lot of Christians uh, being involved in many other activities on the Lord's Day, you are sending, and this is especially for parents, you are sending a very, very unfortunate message to your children. And it's simply this. Worshiping God is a good thing. But don't let the worship of God ever get in the way of what's really important. Your schoolwork or your work, or even your pleasure. That is more important. And you might say, well, that's not what I'm saying at all. And I'm going to tell him, you can tell your child whatever you want. They will see what you do. They will see what you value. Don't be surprised when they grow up and they have a different set of values because of what you taught them through your activity. So let's make corporate worship a priority. That's the first thing. The second and the last thing that I might talk about in terms of method, how we keep the Lord's Day, is that we are to rest, and we are to rest from our usual labors. Notice how I said that. Rest from your usual labors, because once you kind of get, hey, this is exciting. I'm going to start doing the Sabbath. It's a date with God. It's easy to overdo it. The question that I always get as I teach on this topic is, okay, pastor, this is great. I buy into what you're saying. I see it in the Word of God. Now, what can I do, and what can I not do? And what you're asking me for is a rule book. But God doesn't give you a rule book. Not even in the Old Testament did he give a rule book with all that kind of stuff and telling you what to do and not to do. You are mature Christians. You have the spirit. You have the ability to use sanctified common sense to weigh different activities and to say, does this really fit the criteria? But perhaps to help you just kind of get an orientation, I might suggest some things. First, consider this. When we talk about resting, resting does not mean sleeping necessarily. You could you could take a restful nap on the Lord's Day. But it doesn't necessarily mean to sleep or doesn't mean that you have to be inactive. It just means that you're resting from all your personal business, your family business, you're studying for school, you're working for your employer and community affairs. The key idea that should motivate you is that our rest on the Lord's Day is a replica of God's rest from creating. And when God rested from creating, he didn't do so because he was tired. He did so because he was entering into the enjoyment of what he created. God's rest, in other words, was enjoying his creation. And so we're to do the same on the Lord's Day. What is appropriate then? We have to enjoy that creation. And there's many different ways that you can do it. Uh, If you have some time, take a look at the Westminster Confession of Faith. In chapter 21, it lays out a wonderful exposition of Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, Jesus said that we are to engage in acts of worship and necessity and mercy. Let me explain that so that you can understand why those things are things that you can do on the Lord's Day. Worship, we already talked about. We gather as God's people. Necessity, well, that makes sense. You have to dress. You have to bathe. You have to eat. At least I hope you did those things on the Lord's Day. You don't refrain from them. A farmer has to feed the cows and to feed the pigs. Doctors and nurses and police and firefighter and emergency people, they have to work. So those are acts of necessity. Even things like, well, can we shut down the electric power today and everybody take a rest? Well, if you did that, it takes about four days to start up an electric power plant. So, no, there are certain things that out of necessity, you keep them running. You keep doing them, right? So those are things that you have to do. And you can use your sanctified common sense to figure, you know, maybe I can cook this meal on Saturday. It'll be ready for Sunday. But there's some things you can't do and you have to wait. 
and you have to do them on Sunday, right? So like brushing your teeth, please do that on Sunday. The second thing are acts of mercy, acts of mercy. You remember that story in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus goes into the synagogue, right? And we read, a man was there with a withered hand, and the Jews asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than the sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The Lord's Day is the perfect day in which we show mercy, in which we remind people that Jesus and his resurrection is bringing in a new world in which there will be no more suffering. And so since you've cleared the decks, you have plenty of time on the Lord's Day to be able to show that same redemptive mercy to others that Jesus has shown to you. So it's perfectly fine for us to care for others. And I'll add one last thing that's not in Matthew 12, because Matthew 12 talks about worship, necessity, and mercy. But you can have, as I was saying earlier, acts of restful recreation. And I say that because if you've been in the Reformed churches, there is a strain of folks that coming from the Puritan tradition allowed absolutely no rest of any kind, not even a nap on the Lord's Day. And you were only doing acts of worship, necessity, and mercy. It was a busy, busy, busy view. But there is a place for restful recreation. And again, recreation is key, especially if it's appropriately worshipful, if it points forward to the kind of rest that we will have in the last day, then it's important. Remember, it's the festive day for God's people. Some things there that I might point out. If it's recreation that makes other people work, no, because that violates verse 10. You don't ask your son or your daughter or your maidservant or your manservant to work. So if you go out to a restaurant, you're making that person work. If you go watch a Dallas Cowboys game and go to the stadium, you're making those people work. So recreation is fine, but you cannot make other people work. Also, don't do an activity that keeps you or prevents you from engaging in corporate worship. I think if you keep those simple principles in mind, you'll see the day is open with all sorts of festive things that you can be doing that looks forward to the rest that we will have. So, for example, grilling with your friends and family in the backyard, tossing a ball in your yard with your son, all those can be appropriate because they anticipate that future rest, be able to relax and enjoy. You can discuss the things of God. You can discuss the goodness. So those are really important. Once you begin to see that, you begin to, instead of asking the question, what can you not do? You can begin to look and see all the things you can do. You can worship on the Lord's Day. You can read the Bible. You can spend time devotionally reading devotional books. You can spend time with your friends and your family. You can visit the sick. You can go to the nursing home. You can help one of our widows. You can volunteer at CCA. You can take a nap. And if you're doing all those different things, you won't have time to worry about those things that you cannot do. The day takes on a much fuller and much richer experience. So let me just wrap this up. We are at our end. This is a little bit longer exposition. But as we talk about what we can do, the most important thing when observing the Lord's Day is what we read in the Heidelberg Catechism, the second part of that question that said that every day of my life I rest from my evil ways, let the Lord work in me through his spirit, and so begin already in this life the eternal Sabbath. The most important thing you do in the Lord's Day is you rest from relying on your own works and trusting in your own goodness to bring you into a relationship with God. Jesus has done that for us. Let us rest in him. And when we do that and we make the Lord's day about remembering what Jesus has done for us, everything then falls into place and we can enjoy our time with God. Let's pray and ask his blessing on this, our Lord's day.